Good morning. How are you? Doing good? Um, well, I'm glad to be here this morning. I'm glad you could all make it in the frigid weather. Does, does this come up at all? Doesn't? It's, okay, it's, it's stuck. <laughs> oh, well. Um, this morning I want to talk to you about the Lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Uh, we're living in, uh, to say the least, very troubled times. I like to say that we're living in the end of an age. And it's really the end of secularism or humanism. And when I, when I say end, I don't mean that it's over. I mean end in the sense that it's used in Greek, telos, which means completion or fruition or maturity. In other words, we're living in a time when we are seeing right before our eyes the fruit of secularism. We're seeing the fruit in our society of an ideology that has dominated discourse in America for probably the past 100 years. I want to read a quote from uh, an author called William Stanmeyer. He said this. He said, the secular state, by state he means government, grows more hostile to Christianity. Secular power can scarcely conceal its antagonism to Christ and his gospel as the 20th century moves to an end. He says, the secularization of erstwhile Christian culture manifests itself in such trends as expanding government control, a near monopoly, over schools on every level, the purging of all Christian teaching and symbols from these schools, the introduction of relativistic sex education resulting in increased promiscuity, sexual experimentation, and the consequent spiritual numbing of a sizable body of adolescence. The enthusiasm of scientists for biological engineering, including cloning of life forms, apparently aimed at eventual duplication of human life, and the use of uh, artificial insemination and artificial wombs, the abandonment of the Hippocratic Oath's pro prohibition of abortion. Legal changes, setting the stage for euthanasia, the advancement of the theory of illegal positivism, law is what the state says it is, and there's no higher law to judge it. Widespread status anti-family policies, abdication of the state's responsibility through the laws to uphold a modicum of public morality and decency. Through the excessive toleration of pornography, and I would also say now trafficking um, and decency, uh, the destitute of laws designed to discourage the practice of homosexuality and the domination over the communication media, both print and electronic, by persons who approve these trends give favorable coverage to the news about them, and promote visual entertainments that embody and glorify them. This is written over 30 years ago, and it's much worse now. So we're seeing, we're seeing what sounded like a great ideology. Secularism was this idea of pluralism, where we tolerate everybody, and we're all going to get along, we're all going to coexist. And what we've learned is it doesn't really work that way. It doesn't really work that way. In fact, the secularism is not neutral because in God's world, as defined by scripture, there's no neutrality. As, as the Lord said, 
I will put enmity, he said to the woman, I will put enmity between your seed and his seed, meaning Satan's seed. So that's the great antithesis, the great enmity, the great divide of humanity. And somewhere along the line, Christians bought into the idea that we can put people in charge of our lives, we can put people in government who, who do not know God and do not love God and in fact hate God and somehow we'll be okay. Now think about it. That's what we've done. And now we're seeing the fruit of that ideology all throughout our culture. In Psalm, uh, in Psalm 11, we're going to look at a lot of scriptures. You don't have to turn. I'm just going to go and I'm going to, if you can keep up, keep up. In Psalm 11, David says, In the Lord put I my trust. How say ye to my soul, flee as a bird to the mountain? For lo, the wicked bend their bow and they make ready their arrow upon the string that they may secretly shoot at the upright in heart. If the foundation be destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the children of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and him who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire and brimstone in a horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup. For the righteous Lord loves righteousness. His countenance doth behold the upright. This, this verse here in verse 3 says, If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? <clears throat> what is this talking about? The, the foundations here are the foundations of society. The foundations of a just society. One author says this here, says, The foundations refer to those things on which society rests or by which a social order is sustained. The great principles of truth and righteousness that uphold society is the foundations on which an edifice rests rests and uphold the building. The reference is to the destruction of those things in a community when truth is no longer respected. When justice is no longer practiced, when fraud and violence have taken the place of honesty and honor, when error prevails, when a character for integrity and virtue affords no longer any security. This is supposed to be the case in the circumstances referred to in this psalm, when there was no respect paid for truth and justice, and when the righteous, therefore, could find no security. And so the, the psalmist is not saying, what, well, what can the righteous do? Guess there's nothing they can do. If you, if you read it in context, he's being, he's being actually advised or encouraged to give up. Well, what can the, that's, that's not him saying, oh, well. But what does he do? He, look at verse 4. Here's what the righteous can do. The Lord is on his, in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in the heaven. When you see wickedness prevail, you see who's, you have to turn, and you have to look, and you say, who is the Lord? The foundations are being, as it says in 80, Psalm 85, very similar to this, this text. It, there it talks about the foundations being moved or the foundations being shaken. 
And I believe the foundations of our society and our world are being shaken right now. And guess who's doing the shaking? Well, who's ruling? God is, right? Actually, the Lord Jesus is ruling. So when things are shaken, we turn and we look at the Lord on his throne. On his throne. And that is why this morning I want to talk to you about the Lordship of Jesus Christ. In Psalm chapter 2, this text I would like you to turn to. In Psalm 2, it says in verse 1, it says, Why do the nations rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Jehovah and against his anointed or his Christ, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords. In other words, we don't want God's rules. We don't want God's morality. We don't want to be restrained by God in any way. We want to do what we want to do. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his great displeasure. And he will say, Yet I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. Now the son speaks, And the Lord said unto me, Thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O you kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled just a little. Blessed are all who put their trust in him. Amen. First of all, Jesus Christ, as we see from this psalm and many texts, has authority as the ruler. The promised Messiah in the Old Testament was to be a king and the historical incarnate God, the God-man, who we know is Jesus, we call Jesus, is that promised Messiah, is that promised king. And he was to be a king in the highest sense of the word. It says in Numbers, there will come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. The scepter meaning rule. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. As we just read, I have set my king upon my holy hill. And then Daniel, we read, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven, And came to the Ancient of Days, and there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. Amen? And in Philippians 2, we're told by Paul that after, because Jesus was willing to suffer for the sins of mankind, that God therefore... Gave him what? The name which is what? I can't hear you. The name which is above. Some names? 
Is it above Joe Biden's name? Is it above the Supreme Court's name? Is it above the, the name of the Congress? So it's the name above every name. That at the name of Jesus, what's supposed to happen? Every knee, every knee should bow, or will bow actually, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord, ruler, governor. The authority of Jesus, the origin of that authority is from the Father. It is given to him as the God-man as a reward for his work on the cross. Okay? Now, before the incarnation, Jesus still ruled as God. But now he's ruling as God, the God-man. And so, he is sitting on a throne, and he has authority, and it's, the, it's legitimate authority. It's legitimate authority because it was given to him by God the Father, who had the right to give it to him. All authority is under God. When we read in Romans 13 about, about civil government, it says civil government is ordained by God. That means that civil, there's, there's a legitimate basis for civil government because God has ordained it. That's the real, that's the real foundation of it. So Jesus is given authority by the Father as a reward for his suffering and his redemptive work. One author said this, A man sits upon the mediatorial throne of the universe. Think about it. He who stood insulted, despised, condemned at Pilate's judgment seat, now sitting at the right hand of God, rules all worlds as he will hereafter, seated on the great white throne, judge of all men. Our blood brother, according to the flesh, has all power in heaven and earth, that he may make all things work together for good to them that love God. The attributes of both uh, the divine and the human nature are together exercised in the administration of his kingly reign. So the origin of Jesus' authority is that is given to him by the Father, and therefore it is legitimate authority. But what is the nature of that authority? The term authority really comprises at least two ideas. One, um, we talk about authority and power. No, what's the, what's, what's the difference here? Jesus has lawful jurisdiction. That's what authority really is. Now, if you're driving down the road and you see some guy dressed like me standing in the street saying, stop, you don't have to stop. But if you see a policeman with a badge and a uniform and he says, stop, guess what? You should stop, right? Because he has legitimate authority to stop traffic and I don't. Legitimate authority. So as we said, the Lord, the Lord, the Father gave this to the Son as a reward. So he, his, his rule is sanctioned by the God of the universe. But he also has power to enforce his rule, if you will. 
now seated at the right hand of God, he is glorified and he exercises divine power, whereas on earth his deity was veiled and his divine power intentionally limited. Now, as king, he has resumed his full majesty and he possesses all power of the Godhead. That is the Jesus that we worship. Also, we need to point out the extent of the authority of Jesus. After his resurrection, Jesus appeared to his disciples and he said to them, before he sent them out, he said, all authority in heaven and earth is given unto me, therefore go. So the the extent of his authority is universal. All authority in heaven and earth. There's no other place. Now in Philippians, Paul talks about uh, every knee in heaven and earth and under the earth, meaning the living in heaven, the living on earth, and even the dead who will be made alive. Okay? So his authority is universal. That means his power and his might have no limit. You hearing what I'm saying? (laughs) There is no power that is capable of resisting the hand of Jesus Christ. Whether it's natural, human, angelic, demonic, it doesn't matter. There's no power greater than or equal to the power of Jesus Christ. Neither Satan nor all the demons of hell can equal the power of Christ. There's no prince, there's no president, there's no nation, there's no league of nations, there's no cabal that can equal the power of Christ. There's no force of nature. All the, all the forces of the universe, the sun, the moon, the stars, the vast expanse of the universe, all of these powers do not equal the power of Christ. Because Jesus Christ is almighty. He is almighty. He has all authority, and thus he has all power to, to govern and enforce his authority. Now, when we say that he is exercising all power, we mean he's both preserving and he's governing the universe. By preservation, we mean Jesus literally is holding all things together. That's what we learn in the book of Colossians. In Colossians chapter 1. If you want to turn there, Colossians chapter 1. Verse 15, who, and the who here is Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him were all things created. So Jesus is the creator that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him, and what were they created for? They were created for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist or subsist or hold together or stand together. So Jesus is not only made all things, but he's preserving all things in what we call their natural course. What we're observing is the work of Christ in nature, governing nature. 
And he's the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father, or or all the fullness was pleased to dwell in him bodily. So all things are being preserved by Christ, whether they're animate or inanimate, whether living or dead, they're upheld by his power. But he's also governing, not just preserving. Christ not only upholds the universe, he also governs it. That is, he rules all things so that they fulfill their appointed purpose. And their, their purpose is appointed by whom? God. So they fulfill their appointed purpose. So the scripture says that the government shall be on his shoulders, and of the increase of his government there shall be no end. But Jesus also has jurisdiction. All jurisdiction is given to Jesus Christ. That means that every sphere, every area of life is under his jurisdiction. It means that every inch of the universe is under his rule. Now, I don't know about you, I like astronomy. Not astrology, but astronomy. And when I look at pictures of the universe, I, I just sit there and my, you know, my jaw drops down. And I'm just... Jesus made this, and Jesus preserves this, and Jesus governed this. That's the Jesus we call Lord. It's astounding. So when we say that his jurisdiction is universal, we mean that he's not just merely Lord of your soul, or Lord of your heart, or Lord of the church, or Lord of the family, or he's the Lord of everything. He's the Lord of society. He's the Lord of the government. He's the Lord of all. It covers, his jurisdiction covers nature, the plants, the animals, the weather, the planets. It covers men in every sphere and capacity. It covers angels, both good and evil. And this is called his general providence. But he's uniquely the Lord of the church. Uniquely. And as he governs his church, we call this his special providence because of his special love and his special care for his church. Amen? You know, um, a lot of Christians I've noticed on social media were uh, upset by the recent elections. Um, By the way, this is not a pro-Trump thing. Um, Because the current administration is the most pro-abortion administration we've ever seen. Um... The party that governs the national government is, um, according to the scriptures, ungodly, to say the least. There was a vote just the other day. My wife sent me the article. In the Senate, they tried to, there was a bill to the Born Alive Protection Act or something like that. So if, if a woman goes to a clinic or into the hospital and she's going to get an abortion and the abortion doesn't work, Um, the bill said, well, therefore, the doctor has to use all care to preserve that baby's life. Even though the intent when the mother went in was to kill the baby. 
That didn't pass the Senate. I mean, do you understand what that's saying, don't you? That our national government will not defend born infants from being killed. I have no other word for that but wickedness. And we know from Scripture that God abhors the bloodshed of the innocent. It is an abomination to him. Um, So, and that's just one example of many, many, many kinds of policies that we're going to be seeing more and more of. And it's very dark, it's very disturbing, and many Christians are obviously concerned. Actually, many non-Christians are concerned. But I've noticed on social media a lot of a lot of memes and things on Instagram and different places like, well, God works all things together for good. La-di-da-di-da. Trust God. La-di-da-di-da. The idea is, oh, well, you know, just, just have this positive attitude. Everything's going to be fine. Don't worry. It's all going to be fine. It's all going to be fine. Romans, Romans 8.28, God worked all, all things together for good, right? It's all going to be fine then. Well, it wasn't fine for that baby that just got killed, was it? What we do is we take these scriptures out of context and put them on plaques and Instagrams and make memes and and, and make them mean what they're not saying. That's what's happening. And it's, 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 it's so, like, American evangelical. You know what I mean? Like, comfort, peace, everything's good. God never wants you to have problems. Just live your, li- live your best life now. Right? Well, when you read Romans 8, what's it about? First part, it's about living a, a spirit-filled life, right? So the righteousness of the law is fulfilled in us through the power of the Holy Spirit, a victorious life. And then it's about suffering. <laughs> Read it sometime. It's about suffering. And Paul says, we're co-heirs with Christ if we suffer with him. And it's after he says that, and after he says that we groan in prayer, the Spirit has to help us pray, the whole creation's in turmoil, travail. Then he says, God works all things together for good. But then he goes on and talks about being led as a lamb to the slaughter. But he's saying, in spite of that, nothing will separate me from the love of Christ. What we do is we say nothing will, God will separate me from everything that will hurt me. But that's not at all what Romans 8.28 means. It means that even though you may be suffering for the faith, even though you may be persecuted, even though you may be led to the slaughter, in spite of that, God is using that for your good. You hearing me? Okay, he'll use that for your good. Why? Because he says that our suffering in this age is a momentary affliction working for us a more eternal weight of glory. 
So, so, we need to understand that the Lord is governing all things, and I believe He is governing all things even for the benefit of His church, but that does not mean, therefore, His church will not suffer. That is not what it's saying. This is one of the, 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 the most innervating things that has happened to the church. And by innervating, you can look it up on your phone if you want real quick. But anyway, innervating means we, we lose our nerve because we have become so addicted to comfort and personal peace. If something disturbs my peace, or deserves my comfort, well, it must not be from God. And that is just not biblical. Jesus didn't say, take up your couch and follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. Amen? Amen? Take up your cross and follow me. The cross, it was a symbol of shame and guilt and condemnation and judgment. So if you stand for Jesus, you might experience those things from the world. Matter of fact, Jesus even happened to say, the world will hate you. Did he not? Read the Gospel of John. Read 1 John. You're like, oh boy, I'm glad I got up, came to church on this cold morning to hear this depressing <laughs> message. Well, there's an old saying I like, and that is to be forewarned is to be forearmed. Because when the storm comes, if you are not standing on the rock, my friend, you will be washed away. And many, many people in our churches today are not prepared for what may come. I'm not, I'm not a prophet. I don't claim to be a prophet. So I'm not going to say what I believe will come. But what may come, and what we've seen coming, what we can verify coming, is a, is, an, is a growing hostility to Christianity in our own midst. And if you think the Constitution is going to protect you, then you're not paying attention. Because it has not protected 50 million babies from being killed. So why would it protect you? And so we need to arm ourselves mentally and spiritually and realize what we're dealing with here. We're in a grave situation and we need to realize that it could get worse. It could get much worse. But we don't know. Maybe God will send a revival. Maybe. Wouldn't that be wonderful? But maybe God will use persecution to create a revival. Maybe. We don't know. But I believe we need to be prepared. Amen. We need to ford, fortify ourselves mentally and spiritually and be prepared. Because a lot, of, a lot of us have been asleep, man. And going along like things are just as usual and they are not as usual. They are not as usual at all. Now... 
I say this not to cause anyone to fear. As a matter of fact, it is at times like these when the foundations are destroyed that we then look and say to ourselves, who is sitting on the throne? Jesus Christ is sitting on the throne right now. Jesus Christ is governing right now in spite of the social and moral chaos we see. He is reigning now. And that is where we turn our eyes and that is where we turn our faith. Not to ignore what is going on, but, it, but in an attempt to understand it and also to gain confidence in the fact that no matter what God may bring to us, he is still our Lord and he's still in control. I remember years ago I had a conversation with a woman who, her doctor said, uh, after doing a, an ultrasound and some tests, I, I'm afraid to tell you, I, I think your baby may have a disability, a serious disability, but you know, we're not sure. I'm just kind of warning you it may happen. And I was talking to her, she was sharing this with me, and she said to me, I'm sure glad that God knows that I couldn't handle that. So it's not going to happen. Guess what? It happened. She didn't know what she could handle. But God did. To say, well, because I can't handle it, it's not going to happen, is, is, to, is to reduce the, the kingdom of, of Jesus Christ to your, your ability. If we, if we think like that, well, we won't be able to handle it, I can assure you. But I believe that we need to be a people that are at the, at, at the point where we are praying for martyr's grace. I think we need to start thinking about what am I really willing to, to, to endure? You know, in the early church, you, I'm sure you've heard many stories of the persecution of the, of the early church. As far as we know from tradition, all, all of the apostles were killed. Many of them, uh, some of them brutal ways, crucifixion, skinned alive, burned at the stake, other such horrible things. And in the early church, there was persecution. Why did they persecute them? Was it because they worshipped Jesus? No. That was not the problem. In, in the Roman Empire, they believed in religious pluralism. Sound familiar? You could worship your God. It was not because they said Jesus was the Savior of the world. They could preach that message, and they did. The problem with the Christians is they insisted that Jesus Christ was the Lord. That was the problem. You see, it's one thing to say, hey, I worship Jesus. Hey, down at the mosque, you do the Allah thing, and you guys over in your temple do the Vishnu, Krishna thing, or whatever you guys are all into, and you Unitarians can worship your navels, and you guys do, 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 do y'all do your thing, man, because we got pluralism. Let's all get along, right? Well, the Christian said, guess what? My Lord is over your Lord. And moreover, they said, my Lord is over Caesar. 
And when Christians were asked to do the annual ritual, where all they had to do was put a, li- a little incense or a little flower on an on altar, just once a year, Caesar's Lord, and they were good, the Christians said no. Because Jesus is the Lord. He is the only true Lord, and he is above every other so-called Lord. Jesus is called in the word of God. Hear me now. Not just the king. He is called the king of kings. Meaning the king over kings. We think of that, yeah, cool, that's a nice name. Do you understand what it means? It means he's the king over every governing authority on the earth. And in Psalm 2, which we read earlier, those authorities, those kings, and those judges are warned by the word of God to kiss the son, to do homage to the son, to honor him in their calling as kings and judges. Yes, to honor him. Have you ever heard a politician say, well, personally, I'm opposed to abortion, but, you know, I don't want to legislate my... You ever hear that? Yeah. yeah, it used to be very common. Now they don't say it as much because they don't care. And you often heard people who claim to be Christians, or especially Catholics, I'm not bashing Catholics, who would say that, well, you know, our church believes this, and that's my belief abortion is wrong, but as a legislator, blah, blah, blah. I heard Biden say it years ago. What that is, is that is a public denial of the lordship of Jesus Christ. Guess what, friends? There's only one true king of all, and it's Jesus. And that means there's only one morality in the universe. We don't have church morality on Sunday and the world's morality on Monday. You don't have church morality and then go to work and have work morality. You don't have church morality and then go into politics and have political morality. Well, well, they don't have morality, right? (laughs) Well, that's secularism, no morality. No values, no ultimate, no absolutes. So what do you get? You get uh, arbitrary law, which has no foundation at all. And that leads to what? That leads to people resenting the law, refusing to submit to the law, and ultimately it leads to anarchy and chaos in a society. Because if the law is simply what you want, well, hey, what about what I want? You know, when the Pharisees said to Jesus, by what authority do you do these things? Believe it or not, they were asking the right question. They asked the right question. So by what authority can a court or a Congress say that babies can be killed? By what authority? Who gave them that authority? It was not Jesus. It was not God. They do not have that authority although they attempt to claim it. It is illegitimate authority. It is arbitrary authority. And illegitimate, arbitrary authority is called something else, and it's called tyranny. Let me wrap it up, or I'll just ramble all day. I apologize. In conclusion, the fundamental response we ought to have to the the lordship of Jesus Christ is obviously worship and obedience. He really is the king of kings, and we need to meditate on what that means 
for the days ahead. And not just this fairy thing where he's the king out there somewhere, but here now present. When we have so many people in authority uh, denying and even attacking the authority of Jesus Christ. What they don't realize, they're sawing off the branch they're sitting on because he, he is the one that grants authority to, uh, to others because he is the king of kings. We are to worship him as such and we are to obey him as such, right? Secondly, we need to pray for those in authority. Timothy, Paul tells us in Timothy clearly, pray for all kings and all those in authority, right? We're told to do this. We don't do this enough. And we need to pray for them. We need to pray that they get saved. And if they're, if they are Christians, we need to pray that they are emboldened by the Holy Spirit and they have courage to stand for truth and stand for righteousness and stand for justice. Amen. In spite of the opposition. So we pray for them. We pray that God gives them wisdom to legislate correctly according to his will. Not their will, not the party's will, his will. But we may need to pray against them. Because if they're wicked, we have many psalms to give us examples of how to pray against the wicked. And we should pray that God confounds the counsels of the wicked and establishes the counsels of the righteous. So we pray for, but we may also have to pray against. So we need to be an obedient people, a prayerful people, and we need to be a confident people. Confident, but not comfortable. They are not the same. We need to be confident in the lordship of Jesus Christ, but then act accordingly. Live accordingly. Understanding his governorship of the world. Father, we thank you that you have appointed your son, the man who died for us and who rose from the dead, to be now the ruler, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. We thank you, Lord, that he rules ultimately for your glory, but then subordinately for the benefit of the new humanity, his church. And we thank you, Lord, that... Um, He does work all things together for good. But those things may be persecution, they may be suffering, they may even be martyrdom. Lord, grant us the spirit that prevailed in the early church, a spirit that was willing to be martyred so that they might be like your son Jesus. I pray, Lord, that we would be a people of uh, obedience, a people of prayer, and a people of confidence. And I ask it in the name of the King, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.